yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time imon irok the yen of chacht erachor. Agus suligam a makan sha gurfeder erachor inuik kiart len of winter fein. Skilti fis turmi. Tashe dochretche nach vetoch ara egornamian on kestchen ekol. Vien talam aginam griv arkar nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Hello and you're very welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, still at home, still broadcasting here. Uh, and this week, very topical issue, delighted to talk to a very eminent person in the field of contact tracing and privacy, Professor Doug Leith, Chair of Computer Systems at the School of Computer Science and Statistics and an investigator in Connect. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Adrian. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Now, your precise area of expertise is contact tracing and particularly privacy issues, or that's how it was described to me. Is that right? Not so much contact tracing. I, I think like all of us, I've learned about contact tracing since this uh, virus. Well, compared to most of us now, you're, you're <laughs> as close to an expert as, as, uh, as is out there at the moment, but you have been exploring the Bluetooth element and you've, sorry, you've been exploring the privacy element of uh, Bluetooth and contract tracing apps, in particular with one case study um, with Singapore and its open trace um, system. That's you and Stephen Farrell, a research fa- fellow in the School of Computer Science and Statistics. And you've just published a report on that. And I, I want to ask you a few things um, about that. Um, I'll just preface all of this by saying we don't know yet what is going to be in the Irish uh, contact tracing app. Um, that is yet to come. We do have an indication that they may have changed horses, that they may be now looking at a more of a decentralized app than a centralized, a centralized uh, one. Um, before we get into what you were studying particularly, um, Doug, can we just take a step back and could, could we have a general, just a, an idiot's guide as to, to the basics of how, how a contact tracing app is supposed to work with Bluetooth? Because, because there's, there's, there's a confusion even on the absolute basics of how this this might work okay so the the idea is that uh, wireless uh, when, when your uh, handset transmits wireless packets so so it could be bluetooth mm. or wi-fi or whatever then the signal uh, strength decreases as you move further away which is it, it's uh, spreading over over the distance and so uh, if you receive when uh, handsets receive a signal they also know the strength roughly that it's been received with. 
And so they, from that, we can get the idea is they can get a rough estimate of distance. If you're close, then the signal strength should be high. As you move further away, the signal strength should be lower. And the nice idea about the Bluetooth I, uh, way of measuring distance, or the nice way of that, of that general way of measuring distance, is you don't need to know your absolute location. It's just a relative measure of distance between two people. And so it avoids the need for GPS or tracking or knowing where you really are. It just knows that you're within two meters of each other. So that's, that's what the Bluetooth, and so any wireless technology essentially can do that. Uh, the focus on Bluetooth, I think, is because it's Bluetooth low energy and there's a concern about uh, in, in the power consumption, the battery drain caused by these. And, and so by using the particular, that particular technology, uh, it will save on battery. It's also inherently lower distance than Wi-Fi, lower, the transmit power is lower. As you know, when you've connected to Bluetooth devices, it's generally, you know, just a few meters, mm. it's not such long distance, whereas Wi-Fi might be, you know, 20 or 30 meters or more. And, so and why are we even thinking about this? I mean, how might that be useful in a, mm. uh, a contact tracing exercise? So I'm, I'm no expert on the health side, but I'll, here's my understanding. It's that if uh, someone, so what the, the, one of the ways of managing things, especially as we try to ease the lockdown that we're all in just now, is that if someone uh, is, becomes infected, what they do is they cry and look back, health people try and look back in time over the last couple of weeks and try and track down all the people you've been close to because they're now at risk. And if they all self-isolate, then hopefully you can stop the spread. That's the idea. And so the, lots of information, when I've read, so I just read news articles, like, this is not something I'm next from, but just a layperson, when I've read, uh, are, you know, the news is full of this, of course. Uh, it's things, it can be things like, um, I've seen in China, they're, they were using payments. If they keep, because they can keep track of payments, they know roughly where people were. And can, they, they, I think there they were manually keeping track of who's entering buildings and who's leaving. And, and so just trying to get in South Korea, I think they're using CCTV and payments as well, just to try and track back. It's into, you can imagine that's, that sounds to me anyway, intensely manual, not very scalable, uh, quite quite messy. And so the, the dream of the, the apps is that they're going to automate all that way. And it is just a dream, I believe. Uh, and so magically, uh, by, by us all carrying our phones, keeping track of the distance, we we'll press a button and, and know who, who we were near. And of course, um, it won't be quite like that, uh, probably quite a long way from that, in fact, from what my understanding of these things. I saw it back into an area where I do know quite a lot about, which is the wireless end of things. So these signal strength measurements are, are, are uh, notoriously noisy. Just the very way of measuring them is noisy. Uh, but plus, the actual signal strength itself is really variable, especially indoors, because it bounces off the walls. It's not like just a straight path. So indoors is a very complicated environment. Small changes in position can give large changes in signal strength. The a metal, uh, if you're in a, a bus, the, met, the fact that you're surrounded by metal will change, cause reflections and make it really complicated. I, I was taking some measurements in Tesco's this morning and the shelves, the metal shelves are causing all sorts of uh, mad stuff to be happening. Our, our, the wavelength that transmits is the same, is absorbed by our bodies. It's the same wavelength as is used by microwave ovens, which is the, and that's chosen because it's absorbed by water and human bodies. And so if your phone is in front of you and the person is behind you, then your body is between the two phones and absorbs the signal. So it's mm. the same, you can see it's, I think once that privacy to one side, there's a really challenging uh, technical question of whether you can, 
get so, accurate enough data. Because I was going to say, I mean, the the the, dream, the stated goal or the dream of uh, people who are uh, trying to build these apps is that between those phones collecting that Bluetooth data and massing these uh, files or records, um, between that and the authorities being able to notify somebody uh, that they may be at risk, that, that's where most of the policy issues and most of the debate is right now. But but even before we get onto that, you're saying that the signals themselves may not quite be as accurate a denominator as we've assumed up to now. I, th- I think that's that, that's exactly right. Even so, even the Singapore guys, they, they did some studies and they talk about needing to calibrate different phones are different. I think it's, it's very complicated. I've been, that's what I've been doing this week is trying to take some measurements and scenarios to try and get a sense of it. And it is very complicated. Um, I, I think we'll get something, but it's not going to be any um, silver bullet that suddenly magically works. It'll be a noisy, incomplete signal that's an additional piece of information to add into the process of tracing, but I don't think it'll automate it. Yeah, I mean, inter- interesting. The uh, the telecom regulator here in Ireland has about once every two years, it does these uh, tests to try and measure how good or bad phones, the popular handset models are at actually making and taking phone calls and uh, handling data. They don't measure Bluetooth specifically, but the variation in the ability of handsets to do what we imagine to be fairly standard things, you know, they're, they're there. Um, I'm going to come right. on to your study in, in, in a moment. Um, it's worth noting, though, just for listeners and viewers who may be wondering about contact tracing apps around the world, there are a few different models being tri- uh, trialed uh, around the world. I mean, South Korea, which Doug, which you refer to in your uh, report, I mean, they have they have a much uh, a much stricter, much more direct way of, of uh, doing things. Um, they even have a, a this famous app, the Corona One Hundred Meters app, that will alert you if you're if you come within hundred meters of of an outbreak an outbreak zone. Um, Hong Kong have employed tracker wristbands. They give you a wristband, <laughs> yeah, in the airport um, if you're coming into the country. And I think if you've been diagnosed positive, they also give you a wristband, and it uses, it, it doesn't use GPS, as I understand. You might correct me here if I'm wrong, but it, it looks for signals around your home, like Bluetooth signals, Wi-Fi signals, and uses that as an identifier. I, th- I think... I, I, I don't know the Hong Kong yeah, setup. I, I think that's it. But but if it then detects that you're outside your home, you can get fined, I think, a few thousand euro. Um, that's right. So the Taiwan guys are using phones as shackles, electronic... Uh, an electronic fence that, that was one I'd read where they uh, keep track of the location of your phone plus they call you twice a day to check that you're beside your phone and all that stuff yeah, mm, yeah. And, and then closer uh, to home the, the UK who we know a little bit more about because they've been a bit more transparent they are going for a more centralised system their own home built um, app and I think they hope to store a lot of that data on their own servers um, which they say will give them an advantage in being able to to better uh, uh, to 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 more efficiently warn people or to predict or to analyze um, outbreak errors, there, there are some contra- some people who think that might not be the case because there might be technical difficulties with the app running in the background on iPhones and and other conditions um, like that. But um, 
as to what you looked at, you, you and Stephen Farrell, you looked at Singapore and the Open Trace app there, and I think the thesis of of your of your your study was around was the privacy, looking into the privacy uh, considerations there. Overall, what did you, what did you find there? So, what we found so the, re- the interest in the Open Trace app is because it's the only working Bluetooth app that's using this Bluetooth idea. All the other approaches have been uh, essentially centralized, man- very manual ones. So that was interest. Um, I, from what I'd read, it sounded like a lot of people were interested in picking up on that, including the HSE here in Ireland. Uh, perhaps the Australian app is not clear, the, the one they just released, and other people. And it was so, so it's an, an actually interesting thing to have a look at. The Singapore guys themselves cared about privacy. They'd made it open source, and they tried to look at crypto and, and so on to try and make it private. They'd made, use a centralized approach, which is a decision, a health decision, actually, I think, at the end of the day, um, given the noise, the fact that the Bluetooth data is just one extra input because it's noisy into a, into a, a bigger process. Uh, and so given all that context, it seems let, let's have a look at the actual implementation of the app because one of the, uh, one of the things I did earlier in the year was look at browser privacy. And surprisingly, you, know, you, you read policies but when you go look at the data that's really sent, that's actually sent between the app and the back end, there's bugs or there's mistakes or there's surprising things. So there's a, there's a gap between the design and the implementation. This are the architectural discussions just now about centralized, decentralized, what's encrypted, what's not. Those are very fine. But there's another part which is kind of missing from the current discussion that I was interested in, which is, well, the very, we have to build a piece of software and it's easy to make mistakes when building pieces of software that, and, or, or make decisions um, inadvertently that lead to privacy consequences. So I was interested in having a look at what they really implemented and what were the consequences of doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I had to do some work to, so all the connection transmissions between the app and the back end. So first of all, I got the open source, built my own, you know, compiled it on my, I've got a copy of it running on the phone, got my own server running in the cloud. Using you it's all you used a, a Google up. Pixel 2 phone, yeah. 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 And um, so, so just it was easy, very easy to set up. And then what the, the hard part was um, the, the, the communication between the, the phone and the server is encrypted. So you have to do some work to break that encryption. So that was a kind of white hat hacking. And then you can see the messages back, going back and forth. And essentially in that report, it documented, here's what we saw. And there's, so, so there, there's a, the, the, but the other, there's another part to that, which is the, 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 so, so the, it's the metadata. So this is this is part of the same story. Off, so from Snowden and so on, maybe you know metadata is a strange you know, bit of jargon, but it's kind of I think it's in, it's in the common parlance now, isn't it? So what, what well, it the word meta has become a very trendy hip term. If you want to <laughs> yeah, really yeah. on yeah. message and say, oh, <laughs> you, you, if you're going for next level snark, you say that was very meta. Ah, uh, so of course, cool. Then. So, but it's, it's just the fact that uh, two people are talking. You don't know the content of the conversation, but you know that they're talking and when. Mm. That's, that's what metadata is. And so what that means in the context of these kind of apps is that you know that the, so the app was talking to, the, to Google in this case, because they used Google as the back end, and, uh, and, and when they talk. And, and actually, in, when you use the internet, there's an extra piece of information. If you, the simple act of talking to a server means you have to reveal the IP address so that of your, it's like of the phone. That's other, otherwise, you can't route packets across the network. So the very fact of sending a message to, to uh, the Google server at the back end 
reveals your IP address. And IP addresses are, are a rough measure, rough proxy for location. In the city, they're, they're not so rough. Right? They probably get you to the right building, get you inside the right building. And that's a completely standard, those geo IP services, given an IP address, where are you? Those are, those are commercial services, including ones run by Google and other people. And so the very fact of communicating, sending a message to the server to do something, reveals roughly your location. And if you can link those messages together over time, so if you look inside the messages now, and they have identifiers tagging them to the instance of the app running on your phone, which is what the OpenTrace app has, then I can link those messages all together. And so I can see your location over time. And so that's the, that's, that now you've got a sequence of metadata over time, and that, that's well known that, that location traces are quite, can easily be de-anonymized. And, and the, the, the easy example, not, not just now with lockdown, is... Uh, where are you during the day? You're probably at work, so you keep get that location. Where are you in the evening? You're probably at home. So now you know where you work, where mm. you're at home. Combine with some side data, you probably can figure out who the person is. So, so the very fact of regularly talking is quite revealing, and that's what the OpenTrace app does as part of its telemetry, keeping track. So, you're, what you're saying then? It sounds like what you're saying is that there's a lot more personal identification possible through the OpenTrace app. Um, than maybe uh, we, we you know we've been told. There's there's the potential for it. So this is all, all these all these analyses are about the the data that's released and it's the potential uses to which it can be put. No one's saying that there's real. I don't know what the data is really put to. So then to answer those, mm. you start to have to knock on Google's door and say what's what what's your uh, policy on storage of IP addresses and exactly how you use it and all those stuff. And those are difficult, quite, it's often slow and difficult to get answers to those. Well, you, you mentioned uh, so Google. And, yeah, and, and this is one of, I think this is one of the main points of uh, the, the study that, in the investigation that you've done. Um, you, you talk about Google's Firebase analytics um, and you mentioned that the privacy documentation around that uh, outlines some of the information exchanged. Um, this privacy documentation, you say, does not state what is logged uh, by Firebase storage, but notes that Firebase authentication logs, um, uh, logs user phone numbers and IP addresses. Also, that Firebase Analytics makes use of a number of identifiers, including a user-resettable mobile ad ID to allow developers and marketers to track activity for advertising uh, purposes. So... What I got from reading your report was that there is an outside, there is a potential somewhere down the line for this kind of data um, to be somehow excised um, for 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 advertising purposes. I mean, I, I, is that wrong? So the uh, the infrastructure that's used. So those were quotes from Google's documentation. Yeah, just not not, yep. not my words. The the. Um, so the, their infrastructure is built around advertising. That's their business. And so that's why they're, they're referring to it as advertising. The particular use to which data is put, it, it could be anything. I, I can't comment on that. Mm. But one of the, but the worry, so this is, that's conventional advertising infrastructure. The, 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 the worrying part or the concerning part would be, now this is being applied to a government-sponsored, health-sponsored initiative that's going to, the hope is, is going to involve the vast majority of people in the country. And so you're essentially you're handing the government's instructing everyone to hand this data to a third party 
without really cast iron guarantees. That, that that's that's actually where the concern is. You know? Yeah. Otherwise, people making their personal choices and they can judge it, but being, sure. being told. It's the combination of all of those factors and the fact yeah. quasi-adopted as a state service. And because obviously we now have Google and Apple have come together to provide this API for anyone who wants it. Um, we understand that the Germans are probably going to uh, go this way. Ireland now may go this way as well. It looks like it may have uh, changed horses. Um, what you were looking at was the open trust in Singapore, not the Google Apple API. But... The nevertheless, the one of the, the 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 takeaways from the report is that if a company is set up, if its business model is essentially based on advertising and targeting, then it's problematic, or at least there should be much much deeper investigation if it's involved in the core technology behind a, a contact tracing app. There's, there's, it seems like there's an obvious potential. It's just potential, potential conflict of interest. These things are all, often always potential mm. between a, a company that collects data for advertising. Its business is collecting personal data for commercial use, and and then combining it with these uh, health-related uses. It's, a, it's like an obvious conflict of interest, and it, it's uh, and and it's. It, it's, it can be done inadvertently because in the rush to produce an app quickly and there's pressure to do that, these are the ready-made standard libraries that are in lots of apps. You, you know, you, you can fall into the, the trap of, of um, being much less private than you think you are just by using all these standard tools and stepping back and being careful is important. And one, one of the good things, in, in fairness to the Singapore guys, is that they did make it open source and they did uh, make it possible for me to run these tests by, by that. And that's one of the things I think the uh, Irish government should be doing, you know, the, and before they release it, that's one mm. of the things that I've been arguing for, that before we release it, let, let, let some independent people have scrutiny. The more eyes there are on these codes, the more you, try, you can catch avoidable mistakes. So there'll still be things that need to be fixed in the future, but, you know, the more people looking at it, the more scrutiny you get, the more yeah. chance that it's good. And it seems really important that, that people trust it to get high up. It seems important for the contact tracing that many people have the app. If it's only 10%, then it's not going to work. Mm. It needs to be much higher. Uh, and I think they say it's about 60%. Isn't that what they, they say? I, I, there's a, some Oxford guys. So again, I, I don't know expert this. I just read the news. There's, there's some Oxford guys who say you need 80% penetration in the population. No, no, sorry, 50% in the population. And that means 80% of people with mobile phones. With phones, I yeah. guess. There's, I guess because young children don't have phones and some mm. phones. Uh, so 80% is a huge amount mm. of penetration. Of the and, and also when you consider that um, a lot of the people who are most vulnerable, say the over 70s, up to now have been very much the part of the population that are least likely to have the latest smartphone, or even if they do, are least likely to be downloading apps or new apps for them. Mm -hmm. Um, although one would hope that in the current circumstances that uh, if, uh, it, because of the quasi-emergency that we have uh, in the pandemic, that they would download them or that their kids would help them download uh, those apps. Um, there are a couple of... Um, uh, there's a, you're, not, you're not the only person raising this issue. There's a lot of concern over the privacy around... These uh, these contact tracing, and particularly, there's the worry that once the pandemic uh, subsides, that that data that they have is just too useful. The system for gathering it is just too useful for for all sorts of people, and and many would say, you know, uh, many authorities would say, legitimately so. But 
it's just too handy to have to relinquish, you know? It seems like a, a reasonable concern, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean, like, I, I, uh, given... Go on, sorry, Doug. Sorry, just given the history, history of it, of uh, mm. state gathering of data, then uh, yeah, it, seems, it seems irresistible to use the data for other things. Uh, mm. And so I think that's a really legitimate concern. At the very least, it's good that there's a, a public discussion around it and it's not just uh, something that's done yeah. quietly, magically happens. Yeah, I, I, I had to doorstep uh, Drew Harris. It was an organized doorstep, wasn't it? Um, uh, an aggressive one. Uh, the, the, the commissioner, some weeks, about eight weeks ago, and I asked him what he thought of the possibility of a backdoor into iPhones, essentially getting around the encryption. And he said, yep. Uh, we we would find that really useful. We would really like if Apple would do that. Um, you know, we we often get very frustrated in trying to investigate crime because we can't get into those uh, phones. Uh, and uh, this is something that you know uh, civil society should be looking to do. I know the UK has asked for this before. The US has as well. So this is maybe part of this bigger overarching, um, not war because it's not a war, but just just debate over you know where where privacy and uh, efficacy meet in the middle somewhere so i think back doors are clearer uh, are quite clear that you shouldn't have them because mm. whenever you create a vulnerability uh, it's going to be abused uh, it's going to be uh, the, the criminals will use it just as well as the state and so uh, the idea of weaken, uh, weakening the security that way, it's been, it's been widely debated. I'm not saying anything that, that's not, not been said before. Yep. That, that's been very widely debated. And I, I hope it's a, a lost cause that, that the idea that putting back doors in is a, is, it should be done. It seems such a, an obviously bad idea that's sure to backfire in a really bad way. But uh, I, I don't think, I hope that people aren't, you know, this. Security mm. people aren't serious about it. Whereas the accumulation of information is a different matter. You know, that, that's kind of a steady erosion of rights and gathering of information. Mm. Um, but you can see it. So, so, so there was a, I just saw, I'm talking about an inadvertent, because part, part of the risk here is if you accumulate data, there's data breaches uh, inadvertently or, or, or otherwise. And so there was a recent one I saw with the police cameras in Sheffield. They'd recorded some millions of camera numbers and they'd left the, the camera with an open website. You could just navigate to it and see all the details. <laughs> and these things happen, right? With humans, failures happen. But, and you have to be thinking, you know, when you're thinking about so that all these things have to happen, they can happen over time, they do happen. And, and that's, the, that's the sort of uh, things that need to be in your mind when, when talking about these, that it's not a perfect world, that there are abuses, people do make mistakes, and what are the consequences? Yeah, yeah. So you you came you and Stephen Farrell came to something of a conclusion in your report, and you, I think, were recommending that if OpenTrace, the Singapore OpenTrace app, were to continue gathering all of the data that it does, that it maybe should divorce itself from uh, from Google's Firebase. Yes, I think that there's there were two aspects to that. One was it uses Firebase authentication service to store phone numbers, and that uh, the Google documentation says that will be hosted in America, and therefore subject to American state rules and and uh, surveillance and so on. Now, maybe in Ireland we're happy with that, but 
uh, but other countries certainly wouldn't be. So it's worth, that, that's that's one part. And the other part is all this telemetry, this steady stream of messages that's potentially revealing when it comes from the whole population. Uh, that should be well. Actually, to just switch that off. Actually, was what I said. Don't. It, what the recommendation was. It's not. Uh, don't use firebases. That don't. Don't be collecting that telemetry information. It's not necessary, and it's uh, very revealing. If you do choose to to collect it, then then uh, be careful and be aware that the metadata is sensitive. Store it inside the country. Make sure it's held. It's not uh, with third parties. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, listen, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much for patiently explaining uh, some of the aspects of uh, your work. Um, Professor Doug Leith, Chair of uh, Computer Systems at the School of Computer Science and Statistics and also an investigator uh, with Connect. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Eugene. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much again for uh, tuning in. And we will be here the same time next week. Where else are we going to be? Uh, so for me, Adrian Weckler, that's all we have for now. Bye-bye.